0: Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com.
1: Hi, Joshua here, producer for Living Wealthy Radio. Today's talk isn't really anything Teresa hasn't talked about before, but it gets to the absolute heart of the problem. We're talking about the way people save or invest and prepare for retirement today versus 50 or hundred years ago. And by now, if you've been listening, you know that Teresa advises clients in a low risk dependable way of building and saving wealth that is completely against conventional knowledge yet it's precisely the way your grandparents and great-grandparents accomplished so much and retired comfortably without playing the stock market. Our guest today developed many of these concepts that Teresa now uses to advise her clients, and he tells his fascinating story of discovering these principles while trying to sell stocks to people at retirement age. He went to advise them, but they wound up advising him. This talk gets really interesting when he and Teresa shift to exploring just what changed and exactly why people today insist on risky investing when previous generations did just great without it. It turns out, in the 60s, the average Joe got away from common sense and embraced instant gratification and prospecting that used to characterize only the rich and famous. But in the final tally, he's no better off for it. See, people chase those rates of return, and when retirement rolls around, they rarely have anything to show for it. This is a great talk, and you're really going to want to stick around to the end. Today's enriching fact of the day is that you can become fluent in a foreign language in just six months. It's hard to learn a foreign language. In fact, it's a lot harder than the language apps and courses out there let on. Most advertise you can learn a language in 30 days or something crazy like that, so it may not sound that impressive that you can learn a language in six months, unless you've actually tried to learn a language. Then (laughs) you know, learning a second language as an adult is virtually impossible. If you want to feel stupid and utterly incapable, just try becoming fluent in another language as an adult. It's frustrating. but. Chris Lonsdale, who specializes in breakthrough performance, has identified just seven actions that, if executed consistently, will enable you to actually master a second language in just half a year. And what's more, he insists you don't have to have any particular talent in this area or be especially gifted in any way. Anyone can do it. So, what are those seven actions? First, brain-soaking. This means listening to a lot of your target language. Whether you understand it or not, just listen to it. Soak your mind in the sounds and rhythms of that language. Watch your favorite movies with the audio switched over to that foreign language. Next, focus on the meaning more than the words. Try to pick up on body language and tone and get a basic idea what the speaker means. What is the speaker feeling, or trying to communicate. Putting message before words will help you buy in. The words will follow. Third, start mixing. If you have a handful of nouns, a handful of adjectives, and a handful of verbs, you're ready to start mixing them into basic sentences. Just get creative and have fun. Start experimenting with different combinations to start actually speaking the language. The next action is to focus on the core. In most languages, just a thousand core words gives you about 85% fluency. Focus on learning those highly useful words first. Key phrases like, what is this? Please repeat. Plus a few basic words like me, you, also, finally, etc. will get you started making meaningful conversation in your target language, usually in a matter of weeks. Number five, get a language parent. And this is crucial. Children learn to speak by mimicking their parents. They study them. You need to find someone who is interested in you as a person and will help you learn that language. Speak with this native speaker in your target language and listen to them speaking it back much like a parent with a child. Your brain will pick up on the differences and begin conforming you to their speech patterns. Next, watch the facial muscles of speakers in that language and subconsciously absorb the mouth shapes of the language. Feel how it sounds and hear how it looks. Connect the mechanics with the sounds in a feedback loop that really helps your brain understand the new language. And lastly, number seven, is direct connect. Realize that everything in your mind starts with an image. Trying to cram new words into your mind is highly inefficient. Instead, visualize what the word represents. Feel it. Smell it. Touch it. Then describe it in your new language. This direct connection to a mental image is a much more powerful method for learning new words. Today's enriching fact provides a powerful and practical new way of mastering a new language and opening new horizons for us. Learning a second language may be the most difficult thing you attempt as an adult. But these seven actions will help you cut through all the fancy tools and overpriced courses to understand the basic principles of how your brain learns language. Start listening to it, start watching people speak it, and start using the language regularly. You will get it. You're listening to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn.
2: We all know that drinking water is super important. Our bodies are almost entirely made up of H2O. But with a recent scientific breakthrough, you can get more h 2 for your buck with the amazing molecular hydrogen infusion systems and tablets from TruCy. As the smallest molecule in the universe... Molecular hydrogen, or H2, is able to neutralize the most damaging and inflammation-causing free radicals within your cells, and it acts as a powerful signaling molecule to optimize pretty much every function in the body. TruC serves a wide spectrum of clients, from elite professional athletes to wellness leaders and biohackers, to individuals suffering from a diverse range of chronic ailments. With their passion for the serving of one, They provide clients with the most powerful tools possible to transform and reclaim their health and to dramatically boost their performance. If you want to look better, feel better, and make a positive change for your health, check out the ultra-premium health, nutrition, and natural beauty products from Trucy. Experience the power of simplicity.
0: Joining us today is Tim Austin, the man who, along with Pamela Yellen co-founded the Bank on Yourself concept. He is also the founder of Set for Advisors, a leading training organization for financial advisors who want to help their clients grow wealth predictably without risk or volatility. And Tim is here to share why current investment and savings practices are so different from the time-tested methods of previous generations and how we can learn and profit from the tried and true methods of our great-grandparents. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Tim.
3: Well, thank you, Teresa. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course, of course. So just want to share with the audience our history because we've been working together for uh, I think almost 15 years now.
3: Wow, that went by fast
0: that went by very fast and we don't look any older. No, uh, not at all. In fact, we look better. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you are,
1: I'll, I'll go with your version. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> of course.
0: And you along with Pamela Yellen and of course, Nelson Nash are responsible, uh, for just guiding me and helping me, um, understand these principles, which I was looking for strategies way back when, when I, I woke up, you know, with my previous background in financial services and I was trained traditionally, I've got the, the, the degrees and certifications and all that stuff. Right. And when I woke up and realized, all right, the, the traditional way of doing things, isn't going to get people what they want. And I went looking for strategies that were congruent with my understanding of how many works. You were one of the, the three that really helped guide me and teach me and mentor me. And for that, I am eternally grateful because I could have spent the last 15 years misguiding people and working. Um, Together we've we've benefited so many people uh, and just changed the lives of not only our clients and advisors but generations. So I want to thank you for that. Just to start off.
3: Oh, thank you. Well, that's a very very kind words. I think uh, with you saying that, it kind of reminds me of uh, what uh, what smart people do is learn from their own mistakes but it's brilliant people that learn from other people's mistakes. So you must fall into the brilliant category and I fall into the smart category because <laughs> I, I, I early on in my career made the mistakes and then then learned my lesson. So I'm glad that you were part of the brilliant and were able to learn from other people's mistakes. So that's, that's, that's very kind that you would say that.
0: Well, since you brought it up, What was that? What were some of those early mistakes that made you appreciate and understand, uh, you know, just change the direction of you working with clients that brought you to working with this concept? Sure.
3: Well, you know, for for me, I was very young. I was still a a freshman in college when I got into the financial services world. I, you know, kind of uh, was working in and going to school at the same time. But um, that was in 1986 um, that I got got involved uh, full time in the financial planning services arena. And one of the things back then when you when you came into the business, the first thing that I I did, which was kind of attractive to me and I went to work for a company that what is commonly known today, many many years later, although they do still exist, is is boiler room stock um, seals type organization. Uh, basically, Teresa, what that means is you you were down in a room with uh, ten people on a on a big long table with ten phones at the time. Um, that still plugged into the wall if you if you remember those but they weren't they weren't those dial rounds you could push the button which was uh which was a good thing but basically you were just calling and selling the stock of the day and i lasted about six months doing that and realized that this is it just it just was a horrible thing it it did not take into account Anybody's real personal situation or not, it was all about what that particular company felt was the what was a a a good stock to sell for that day. Whether it was good for that individual person or not, really didn't seem to matter. Um, So I really I didn't last too long in there, but then I I moved over to another very large uh, name even to today um, where I did get a full spectrum of financial services training. It's where I got licensed for everything um, and got a, a very, very good education on a diverse Overall financial solution, Um, but I still ran into an issue where I was working with a manager, and one of the things that you do when you're young and just getting started in the financial services business is you go out with a manager to see um, the top hundred people on your list. They called it a Project One Hundred. So those people are the closest people to you that will that will actually sit down with you and maybe listen to what you have to say. So um, just the one story that I'll share that really changed my life was uh, meeting with my grandparents. My my grandmother and my grandfather went through the Great Depression. They shared the story of finding a dime on the sidewalk and being able to buy a can of soup for that day um, really understanding that perspective of what was going on. in you know, 1929 through ni- you know, 1935 from, from my grandparents and how difficult things really were. So they never, uh, invested in the market. Um, they, uh, you know, their money, they were great savers. They, um, they were not rich people per, you know, per se, but they, um, they worked hard. They saved hard. They lived within their means. And my manager at the time—I really didn't do much uh, talking—convinced my grandma and grandfather to purchase a ten thousand dollar bond mutual fund. Well, Teresa, what I uh, what my grandma said is is just looking at me, not necessarily the manager, and me not really being, you know, fully understanding what was going. I certainly. Uh, you know, passed all the tests. Actually, I don't think I got less than a 97 on any test I ever took in in regards to my education. But that doesn't mean I had real world experience. It just means I knew what the things were, what the products were. And she just simply said, Tim, I'm not concerned about the return on my money. I'm just concerned about the return of my money. And the conversation was, this is a safe. It's a bond fund. It will do very well. Let's look at its history. Let's look at how it's done, so on and so forth. Well, that was that was early 1987, uh, Teresa, and um, some of your listeners and, and yourself. I know uh, you may recall what happened in October of 1987, but Uh, That was Black Monday, and uh, that account, that $10,000, went down very, very quickly in value to about $6,000. And I had to let my grandmother know that, um, you know, her account, although if we don't cash it in, it's, you know, we're not locking in our losses, but the value of your account, if if you were to cash it in today, um, would only be worth $6,000. And that, that absolutely early, I'm very blessed that I made some of these mistakes very early in my career, but that, that put me on a completely different pathway to figure out um, the best way for each individual client that I work with, what is the best overall financial solution that they could come up with to get them where they wanted to go without taking unnecessary risk um, and that's probably the biggest event early in my career that that set me on this path.
0: And my experience was a little bit different. I certainly hadn't sold my grandmother something where, you know, that must have been heartbreaking for you, heartbreaking for her, you know, the the emotions around that, the stress around that, that anxiety around that, right? Uh, I totally, totally get that. But I also experienced working with clients, and I hadn't put them into these investments, and, and I hadn't designed their their portfolio or their their financial plan. I was just looking at what they had, and they were to retirement and projected out. If I work with clients and I put them on the traditional stuff, they're going to end up with this at the same place. And these people aren't happy. They don't have what they want. Right. No. And you mentioned something that I think is so important. You know, this isn't this whole bank on yourself conversation is not about bashing wall street or t- traditional financial planning, Per se, but there is a big difference between being educated under that school, right? And offering products and strategies under that school and the reality that many individuals, families, business owners, you know, et cetera, experience from a financial perspective.
3: Oh, it definitely is. It's uh, you know, it's it's the paradigm in which people are are educated in, uh, trained in, and experiences that they've had in life. Um, you know, it's it's a great point, Teresa. Uh, you know, for example, a, a client that I just took on a couple weeks ago. It's it's actually a great example. Um, this, is pers- this is a person that has had their head down for 31 years. Uh, he, he, uh, they, uh, actually, both him and his wife, however, his wife stopped working about five years ago. Uh, he still works uh, for, for General Motors. And so engineer, great incomes, and just hacking everything into their 401k, at you know, great savers, Maxed out that thing every year, but they really didn't save anywhere else. And then the biggest concern is that he's retiring in three years. And when he looked at his overall portfolio in all of these years, keeping the head down, having you know, traditional, uh, I would just say money managers that have managed this portfolio, he hasn't done barely three percent as a return in all of these years. And the the biggest thing for him you know from this paradigm like he just didn't know anything else is that it, when we started talking about all of the years that he went through 20% losses 30% losses 40% losses 2007 8 um the anxiety the emotional turmoil that him and his wife went through at that time that he He knows that there's no way he can do that going through you know thirty years of retirement, but he but none of these plans that that he had on his payroll were offering him anything that provided him with any kind of um safety um guarantees, security, anything that made him feel safe at night that he would be able to have a certain amount of income that he could be comfortable with. And it really comes from the paradigm and the people that he surrounded himself with for all of those years. And the only thing they focused on was you just have to save more. You just have to plug it into the market. Hang in there. It will always come back. These are all the things that he's heard over all these years. But he's never heard about well, what are you trying to accomplish? Well, if you if if you want a hundred and eighty thousand dollars of retirement income and you can do that without taking market risk, would you like to know about it? Well absolutely, but no one has ever said that to me. No one has ever shown me anything that could do that. So it really is this this Kind of paradigm that people get stuck in, and, and really an in industry that um, just doesn't like to talk about guarantees. They love speculation. They love um, you know that that risk, but yet they'll downplay the risk. Um, you know, it's just it, it's 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 been an interesting 30 years to watch how. The world has changed.
0: It is fascinating. And I could tell you stories of my early days before, you know, when I was working for a Wall Street firm, and that it just horrified me, right? And again, it's not about bashing Wall Street. It's just the paradigm that they're in and the glasses that you're wearing when you're in that world and how you look at the world. And of course it makes perfect sense to live in risk and to offer risk when that's all, you know, or that's all you're taught to know. Right. So you did some really great research on how previous generations handled money and that really gave you a great perspective um, as to the, the difference between what past generations did in handling money versus what we're taught to do. Conventional financial wisdom tells us to do with our money. How did you decide to go down that path and research that? Was it your experience with your grandparents?
3: Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Actually, um, that's it started with with what happened, um, you know, in 1987. It's my grandparents, and and obviously I did have some other people that were in the same situation, um, you know, that my grandparents were were, were in. Uh, that that just really made me uh, start to look for a better, a better way of doing financial planning and working with clients based on what it was that they wanted to accomplish. And it's interesting that you say, um, I, I, I you just said it and I, I don't, I, I don't, uh, common today, common, um, conventional, con- conventional, financial, yes. Conventional wisdom today. Um, it's really interesting because, Conventional wisdom before the 70s wasn't anything what it is today. Um, in fact, it was the complete opposite of of what we see in uh, conventional wisdom today. And the interesting thing is, is you got you have a lot of um, TV and radio actors that are, you know in today's world that are there's so much more exposure there's so much so many more people that are that that are out there with an opinion and they need ratings and they need controversy and they need you listening to the next issue and problem it's 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 kind of like they they want to constantly keep a train wreck in front of you because the, you know, you're going gonna, you're, you're gonna to you're going to continue to listen to their program or whatever the case may be. Um, back when I did my research, it came from two perspectives. One, um, just anything I could get my hands on. Uh, and really, I went back about 5000 years, but um, I won't take you back that far. Uh, but if we just go back to the way people thought in, in what was considered to be the greatest gener- generation, so that gr- generation that went through uh, the Great Depression and what led up to that and then what happened after that. So first of all, what led up to that? Um, that that crash and that economic downfall well there was a lot of policies in place and there was the roaring 20s and and people were leveraging what they had and and they were using margin accounts and margin accounts on top of mortgages that could be called on their homes led people into a into an economic spiral with runs on the banks and, run, and and margin accounts being called, mortgages being called, and it was a terrible situation. Um, you know, it just, all of these worst case scenarios that just kept piling on each other. Well, if you look at what the market, uh, you know, from its low at that point in time, it took 26 years for the market to get back to where it was in 1929 that is a if, if if you were somebody that was looking at retirement within three years or in retirement you, you you were done you 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 had you had no 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 way to um you know to get that back and w- there was a lot of things that got put back and pl- got put in place um legally that you know mortgages can't be called today, margin accounts are, have more restrictions on them and there's a lot, lot of other things going. But what I looked at is what were people actually doing? How were they handling money? Um, we often joke about um, you know while well, my grandmother, my grandparents, uh, you know they, they, they saved, they never saved in the market. But yet they led, they led great lives, a, a great lives. My grandfather started a credit union. My, my grandmother worked a very long career at, at Hudson's, which is closed now, and had her pension. Um, they, they did a lot of charitable work and gave, gave money to a lot, of, a lot of charities. But they never invested in the market. And so, uh, you know, looking at what these people did and how they lived, um, I seen that there was something different in 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 the way that they lived, the way that they were, they they handled money. So the company that I was with, I, I I did pretty well within my first year and a half, two years with being with the company, and eventually they started to give me what's called orphan clients. So I asked them to give me as many of these orphan clients as they possibly could give me. And I went out and seen all of these orphan clients were, that were at the time. So remember, this is like 1988, 89 um, in, the, in this area. And I'm going out and seeing 70 and 80-year-old uh, couples. And it, it was such a great learning lesson. It, it, it's an education that no, I, I, I just could not pay for. You, you don't get this kind of education in a, in a university or a college or even with, the, even with the financial firms that are out there. They're trying to figure out how to, how to make money themselves. These people interviewing them was such a pleasure. These people lived lifestyles that that were um, full. They happy people. Many many stories about uh, you know their children, their grandchildren, and financially the things they were able to do to help their children and their grandchildren. The way in which they lived, and a lot of that, Teresa. What I found. Is that very few of these people that when I'm looking at them, they're very financially um, successful from what I would say that that middle class to maybe even lower upper middle class in regards to, to the wealth they've been able to accumulate. And it was shocking to me that very few of these people had ever put any money at risk. Um, All of these things came into play in regards to how I looked at doing financial planning in my career, which is now 33 years uh, in the making. Um, My clients are are very, very happy, and many of my clients um, have never seen a down year. Um, I personally have not had a down year in my net worth in – probably 31 years now. And that's 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 uh that's that's a tough statement for most conventional wisdom financial planners to say.
0: They can't say it. No, they, they cannot. They can't say it. So what do you think changed? What caused people to start thinking differently? And those who know me who, you know, follow us on Living Wealthy Radio know that I I believe Um, and here's my tinfoil hat. I believe that there are forces that look out into the future and say, what do we want people to start doing? What actions, what decisions do we want people to start doing? And in order for people to start acting a certain way, we need to change their thinking. And so what do we need to do in the culture, right? In terms of, influencing, persuading people to start thinking different so they're going to act different. Um, so we know that from a big picture perspective, but what exactly started changing that caused people to go from a savings mentality to a risk mentality when it comes to, you know, accumulating, preserving wealth?
3: Sure. So from my research, uh, Teresa, this can be tracked back to about the 60s, where late 50s, 60s, where we started to really see some significant um, policy, government policy changes, uh, markets, trying to figure out Wall Street, trying to figure out how they can capture more of the of the the middle class market and again you got to think back you know who was in the market for the most part uh before well even in the 20s it wasn't really the 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 middle class or especially not the lower middle class in fact up until the 60s 50 percent of this nation's wealth was housed in permanent whole life insurance and fixed annuities, and if you even look at um, banks and and certain and, and lifetime politicians that have been around a long time, that, you know, which is uh, public knowledge, uh, m- the majority of what they're investing in is is whole life insurance and fixed annuities, even today. But what changed uh, back then is one is uh, if I put it into a word is I would say that speculation started to become mainstream. So Wall Street was successful in getting um, legislators and policy um, to be changed, which made it a lot easier for the middle class to start taking advantage What uh, what I would say um, as their perspective is taking advantage of what the wealthy were able to do and that was to invest in the market in a consistent basis so this message of you too can have what the wealthy have by being able to invest in the market and this started with uh, a Keogh private uh, 401k uh, a plan where market um Aspects were brought into the everyday savings, rather than uh, people that prior to that they would be saving through permanent whole life insurance, uh, fixed assets. Um, they would be looking at uh, controlling, you know, budget and, and debt. Whereas today, uh, the common thing is to don't worry about. Um, saving before you purchase that thing you want. You can have it now. I mean, you think about some of the commercials out there. It's, you know, it's yours and you can have it now. If you want it, you can have it now take out that home equity line of credit to buy that dream vacation or go on that dream vacation, use those credit cards to take advantage of this. We have an introductory offer of a 0% for, for 24 months, whatever it is, you can buy it now. Um, you can, you can have zero interest on replacing your windows for, you know, for, for 36 months. Now, Those are things that absolutely would never have happened prior to the 60s. Prior to that, you saved up what you needed, then you purchased whatever it is that you're looking to purchase. Um, uh, Emergency funds wasn't um, a credit card. It wasn't a home equity line of credit. That's not what people did in regards to building up emergency fund. Their emergency fund was permanent whole life insurance and, and maybe one and a half, two months of cash in the bank, whether that be a CD or a money market type account or just simply a savings account. Um, well, in, in a lot of cases, let's not, let's not forget about the cash under the mattress and the mason jars in the, in the basement, um, which certainly a lot of those people did that. They, had, they, they did keep cash. But what changed, and 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 what's quite obvious of what changed, starting in the 60s, really going through the 70s, is is this idea of speculation and and um, lifestyle. You can have it now, if you if you think about it, Teresa. Do we live better lifestyles now or, or back then? It's it's really, in my opinion, an interesting question because there's no doubt. That if you look at the average size of of, of a middle class home these days, it is twice the size of what it was, you know, prior to the let's say the the 60s. Um, so we're living in much bigger homes. We're driving much nicer cars. We have cell phones. We have uh, electronics that none of this stuff existed back then. So are we living a better lifestyle, or are we not? Well, when we look at all of the financial problems that this country has, 1.7 trillion dollars in student loan debt al- uh, uh, alone—you know, this is a huge burden on this country. Well, who drove that? People, you know, prior to the '70s, '60s—you know, college education, you saved up for it. That the, if, if if they didn't save up enough, the kid would work, and there'd be a a, a strong message that we're, we'll partner with you to get you through this. Well, if you look at graduation rates today compared to, you know, the 50s, they're not drastically that much higher for people that are getting four-year undergraduate degrees, actually completing them. And then also, if you look at the, the uh, vocationals, you know, the two years and the trades, that's substantially down. And it's causing a, a real problem in this in this country, um, you know, taking on debt, taking on a philosophy of speculation. You can earn 12 percent a year. Just got, you know, um, the Dave Ramsey's of the world, which, you know, I, I still have that that bet out to him to just show me any any portfolio of a client of his, uh, which he doesn't have clients. He just provides you know, wonderful advice. But who, who, who has done this 12, count, 12% compounded interest for, you know, 20 years, 15 years? It, it, it just haven't seen it. Um, so speculation and the idea that you can have it now is, is probably the two biggest things that started to change and started to become mainstream that, that completely decimated the way people save and build financial security for themselves.
0: Wow. You said so much there. Um, all right. And I just want to level it up just one more level. Why do you think, you know, the, you can have it all now you can like, like Madison Avenue, right? The advertising, the conversation, um, the peer pressure, the, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, mm-hmm. the, you know, all of that from a cultural perspective made it to where we are today, which if you have this conversation today for people who are experienced and know, okay, chasing the risk didn't get me what I want. I need something different. This conversation makes sense. But if you're young and don't have the experience of losing money, you you hear this conversation, you say, are are, you guys are crazy like how can this be that you're telling me i shouldn't take risk and i can't have it now and i can't go to college and and finance it and and why that doesn't make sense and you know the the conventional stuff right um from way back not today doesn't necessarily resonate
3: yeah, it's definitely a, a, a challenging time in regards to find, finding, you know, a pathway to just simply uninterrupted compounding interest is not mainstream anymore. The discussion is not mainstream. College courses, it's not in there. It's such a small thing that that is talked about these days. So. Uninterrupted compounding interest. This was something that a pretty well respected person, even to today, um, talked about in depth, and that's Albert Einstein. You know, that compounded interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And it has been bastardized by Wall Street and by traditional financial planners where they talk about average interest. Uh, rates of return, which are drastically different than talking about uninterrupted compounded rates of return and growth. Uh, For for example- And and I just want to
0: make one quick point, right? You say the word uninterrupted compounding and people think, you know, they're confused. They look at you and they're like, all right, I get what compounding is, but my portfolio compounds- you know is compounding the growth is compounding so speak to that real quick because a lot of people think that's what they're getting
3: and that's exactly what i'm talking about Teresa. people don't know what even compounded returns are um you know babies having babies earning money uh, 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 for money let's take it way back to where, where the primary economy was farmers why did farmers have so many kids? Because they needed help, and they needed help that they knew would leave them. It, you know, so it, it was traditional. You work on the on the on the farm uh, as very young ages, right? So you're making you know money off of the babies. So it's um, you know going back to again that 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 30s, 40s, 50s of of. People that had that term, you know, babies making babies and, and earning money. Well, when you look at this as interest that's compounding, you cannot have a negative year and consider that to be compound uninterrupted compounded interest. So when you have a portfolio that you're just simply saying reinvest my my capital gains or reinvest my dividends or interest on that bond, but yet the underlying portfolio can can lose money. Well, that's not uninterrupted compounded growth or interest. So for example, and I know you know this, Teresa, but if you have a $10,000 investment that goes up 10% or up 100%, let's say for easy math, It goes down 50%, goes up 100%, goes down 50%. So that's four years of that that $10,000 going up 100, down 50, up up 100, down 50. Well, what is that average rate of return? Well, it's 25% per year. But how much money do you actually have in your account? Well, you still have $10,000.
0: But I have twenty-five percent average return, Tim. (laughs) Yeah, uh, wonderful.
3: I have bragging rights. You got bragging rights. Congratulations! (laughs) But guess what? You still only have ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand goes up to twenty. Twenty goes back down to ten. Ten goes back up to twenty. Twenty goes back down to ten. You know, so a hundred minus fifty. 100 minus 50 you got a 25% average return but you still only have $10,000. This amazes people when you actually do this for them and you take you know a, a portfolio that they've been building over years and years and they say, "Oh, I've I've done at least 10% a year. This thing's doing great." And then when you actually go in and you analyze it for them and you show them that they've done less than 3% if, the, if it was compared to an uninterrupted compounded return product, they've only done like three percent, and they and they're they're amazed. They can't quite comprehend it. And I, it, very very smart people, uh, very very highly educated people. I, I when I sit down with them and we really dig into this. And I show them this after we do a complete analysis of it, they, they can't believe it. They don't understand it. They don't know know what happened.
0: You know, like you, I've got brilliant clients, you know, physicists, rocket scientists, engineers, they know math, right? And they think, well, I know math, so I'm going to understand these financial principles. And they know something's off, which is why they're having the conversation, right? They know something's off, but they, they can't put their finger on it. And for you that's listening and you're saying, I get it. I know something's off and I know the numbers don't work out the way they should. Because if I'm getting 10% or 5% a year compounding, my money should be growing besides what I'm putting into my account. And it's not. And this is why. Because there's yeah. a disconnect between your average rate of return and what's actually growing, and the actual growth in your account, and the you know the the regular Wall Street investments don't compound. It's not uninterrupted compounding. That's a whole nother story.
3: It's it's another story that falls into speculation, right? So when people um, And I'm assuming your audience knows you in regards to one of the primary products to shore this up that going back to the again um, prior to the 60s that people used was was a whole life insurance contract that allowed for uninterrupted compounding interest. But yet it could also double as people's emergency fund. People's fund that to get get their kids through college. People that uh, needed a car. By the way, every ten years, right? Not every two years. Not a lease payment. Um, they, you know, that's just not the way that they handled their finances back then. Uh, you know, so it's they were able to use that whole life insurance contract to purchase those things, but yet not interrupt the compounded uh, gains and dividends that were being accredited to those policies as they put that money back in. And that's where those people that I was meeting with, the 70 and 80-year-olds that I was meeting with back in the 80s, that was the huge thing that brought them comfort, brought them financial security, that they were able to sleep at night. Um, And and I can't tell you how many stories that I could uh, uh, that I got from them where where their kids got themselves in financial situations because they they lost money on a speculation. um, And the the parents would help them out uh, to get through a, a financial crisis. And where did they get the money from their whole life insurance contract? So it's just one of those things that. It's not commonplace anymore, but boy, it's time to keep fighting the fight and, and get people educated on what this thing can do for them by just implementing some of these basic principles that are, 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 uh, you know, two generations, I guess, before, before us were, were able to do very successfully.
0: And it's, the dollar's working harder for you than anywhere else. For every dollar that you've got working inside these policies, it brings you so many benefits. But, you know, I want to ask you this. Why do you think, you know, the strategy we focus on, we, we build our clients' financial foundation with – Why is it so demonized? Why does Wall Street hate it so much? Why does the media hate it so much? Um, There's enough information out there online now today, thankfully, that if someone was to do thoughtful and informed research, they can navigate through the BS, right? But why is it so demonized?
3: Well, one of it really goes back to the 70s. Um, you, know, you, had, you had a very, very high interest rate inflationary environment, and you had one person that was extremely successful in attacking whole life insurance and getting people to cash those policies in and move them into speculation mutual funds. And to purchase term insurance, and that that person was able to attack the whole life policies on this rate of return. You are being ripped off. You are being charged, uh, you know, exorbitant fees for insurance, whole life insurance from big bad insurance companies, in which you could be putting that money and in and, and in mutual funds earning yourself 12% if you need life insurance just buy the term which is going to be extremely cheap and he attacked it and be, and interest rates being 14 15 16% whole life policies don't move that quickly so whole life policies you know with dividends and interest might have only been paying 9% at the time so he was very, very good and his name was A.L. Williams um, and he was able to attack the market and not only attack it um, through just his um, his company, but he was also able to convince politicians that that this product was a bad product. And then all of a sudden we started to see restrictions on the whole life insurance. Uh, Or insurance, you know, uh, accumulation products, uh, insurance products, and whole. So there was a very, very good job, a a tack job on these on these products, based on the fact that um, that they were saying they were really, really high cost, and that they were very low rates of return. But what we know now, thirty and forty years later. Is that that company couldn't even come close? In fact, the term insurance they were selling in the in the the mutual funds were that they were selling were, were some of the highest cost products in the market ever to exist.
0: And what a legacy Al Williams left, right? I don't. I'm not sure if he's still alive today. I don't believe he is, but um, millions and millions of people who gave up their permanent life insurance for temporary life insurance, thinking that they were going to, you know, buy terms, save the difference and have the difference when they retired and ended up retired without the death benefit and without the savings they thought they were going to have. And you and I have spoken to so many people who experienced this and they have That, I think, is a a great regret from a financial perspective.
3: Uh, Thousands, thousands over the years that have those regrets. And I wish I didn't do that. I wish I never gave that up. Um, You know, my mom's whole life policy, which my grandma took out for her when she was 17 years old, uh, that thing is, you know, I show clients that. How can this be a bad thing? This, you know, my mom will be 80 this year. Um, you know, that was taken out when she was 17. It has a net internal uninterrupted compound return of almost 7%. It's six and three quarters percent, and that's on a tax-free basis. You know, Dave Ramsey's not going to show me a a a speculative speculative portfolio that has beaten that. It it, it just isn't pure rate of return. I don't even if he could show me that, what about the death benefit that comes into play there that has that my mom has had all of these years that if, in fact, she did pass away, what's the multiple on that, which is also passes income tax free? Can't do that in a speculative speculative portfolio where you buy term. And then what about the cost? What about the cost? Well, if I did have to buy term. Wouldn't I have to have a whole lot more money, um, you know, as a, as a return in order to equal the same thing? And, oh, what about taxes? Wouldn't I have to even have a greater return? You'd have to get a, a 13% compounded return in order to match that. Um, you know, so, yeah, I think those are some, some of the issues is this, you know, this attack job that was absolutely false. Um, it's geared people to to look at speculation and think that it's normal and and, and that, it, yeah, of course, it's going to it's it's going to work out for you. You just got to hang in there. You just got to wait long enough and cash all of your money in at the right time and you'll do just fine. Well, when you walk people through these options, there's not too many people that I know that when I, I really do this analysis for them, that they turn around and say, Tim, you know what, I kind of just really like this speculation. And I know that when I'm going to retire, you know, seven years from now, 12 years from now, 20 years from now, I'm going to cash it in just at the right time. And I'm going to be fine.
0: Hmm. Not
3: too many people like that plan.
0: No, they don't. So Tim, to wrap this conversation up, and it's been epic, and I really, really appreciate you coming on to Living Wealthy Radio, but you've often um, prescribed a 10, 10, 10 rule for savings. And so if you can tell us what that is um, and then tell us how the critics respond to hearing about the 10, 10, 10 rule.
3: Sure. So it's not, not, not rocket science here. And I just put a name on it. So going back Teresa to all of those people that um, I was working with that were in their seventies and eighties and, Really looking at how did they live, how did they accomplish the financial success that they accomplished, and very rarely ever taking out any kind of debt other than the their original mortgage on the on their home. How did they do that? Well, what I I was noticing, and, and again, this is hundreds of them that that I worked with over that over those couple of years. And what I was finding is that there was some commonalities in regards to how they set money aside. And generally speaking, they were taking 10% of their income and they considered that their short-term expenses. So think about Um, your, your, your uh, once a year vacation, your holiday gifts. um, You know, what are the things within 12 to 18 months, you know, maybe even pushing out 24 months that you're going to need and you're going to need to spend money on. And generally, when I was talking with these people, it added up and it was, none of them told me, uh, really that it was 10% of their income. But it, it, it just was amazing to me that time after time when I did these analyses and I added them up and I looked at what they were doing, it it almost always fell real close to this 10-10-10 rule. So basically, they were taking 10% of their income and that's what they were budgeting for their short-term expenses. So again, um, those, that, that vacation, the, that, those gifts, um, you know, uh, you know, maybe they knew they, they needed, a um, a, a home improvement if that fell in within that two year period of time. Um, you know, maybe that would go into the budget, but then the second thing is that two to 10 years or so, uh, what are the needs that they're going to have and, in This is another thing. They actually thought about these things, Teresa. Um, A lot of people today, it's like it's a surprise to them that they need a new roof after 15 or 20 years or or they need to put new windows in their home, which I just had to do, which is sensitive to myself. But, um, you know, after 15, 20 years of living in, in, in a home or or it's a surprise to them that, oh, my goodness, my. My car broke down and I have $1,500 of expenses, whatever that might be. Um, These aren't surprises. These are things that we can actually project. And this is the way that people used to think. Um, How about health insurance? Well, I didn't know I was going to get sick. Well, did you know you could get sick? You know, I didn't know that my son was going to come down with cancer. Um, and and I was going to have expense, but I knew that there was a possibility that I could have medical costs uh, that were extravagant. Um, so I I I had protection for that. I had uh, savings. So the other thing is taking ten percent of your income and saving that and building up a reserve for that two to ten years. So in this situation, maybe a car, right? So. Um, they would get on car. On average, they would keep their cars seven to 10 years. So that was probably the biggest thing that 10% of their income um, was going towards those two to 10 year uh, type n- needs. And then the one that still exists today, although people are not doing it properly, but people will kind of tell you they, they, uh, they know about it is to save 10% of your in- your income in order to replace your working income or to retire on. And on average people in the, you know, today are saving less than 5% um, and, and not, wasn't too long ago that people were saving, you know, less than 2%, but uh, 10% of your income is for you, that long-term income replacement. How do critics feel about this When When I've put it out there in the world to financial advisors, most are very, very critical. Of the idea that somebody could switch to saving 30% of their income, you know, 10% for short-term, 10% for midterm needs, and 10% for income replacement. Tim, that's just not reality. That's just not uh, you know today's world. My response is anybody can do this. You just need to start where you're at today. If 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 you start paying attention to it, you'll probably find within your lifestyle, you could rearrange some things to, to find another three or four or five or 10% of your income that you could start moving towards your short and midterm and possibly long-term needs. And then you just keep building on that. Each year, you get a little bit better. Each month, you get a little bit better. Once you actually start paying attention to it, you might even get addicted to it and it might become fun to truly see your net worth and your expenses become under control and not only under control, but actually predictable. And all of a sudden, things will start to calm down. Your financial life will start to calm down. You won't have that uneasiness as to what your future may lie um when when you start taking this under control and stop buying into you know the idea that you your emergency fund can be a home equity line of credit or you can purchase something on a on a credit card or or buy a vacation ahead of time before you actually save for for it Um, you have to you know these types of principles have to become important to you in order to get to where you ultimately want to go.
0: And, you know, the bank on yourself advisors that work within your organization of which I'm a member of, um, this is our experience with our clients day in and day out. This isn't unusual. It's becomes part of the norm. It becomes part of the conversation. I have clients who live on 20% of their income. Now, immediately people think, okay, well, they've got to be making a ton of money. Yes, they didn't start out that way. Right. And if you don't have that as a bar, you'll never get there. You just will never get there.
3: Yeah, you just have to start where you are today and make it a priority. Um, You you know, most of us uh, have learned, you know, over the last 30, 40 years, uh, especially, I guess, even talking to the younger people, um, that it's it's okay and it's normal to have, uh, you know, a really nice car and go out and get that BMW today because why not? You know, you can afford it. The lease payment's only $800 a month. You can afford it. Why would you deny yourself that? Well, you should deny yourself that if you're not in the financial situation to do that in a financial situation, meaning how close to the 10-10-10 rule are you in regards to the dollars that you're saving? So basically, if you think about the 10-10-10 rule, that's 30%, 20% going to taxes, you can can go live on 50%. So you know, what kind of lifestyle can you live at 50%, not even necessarily 20%. It's probably a pretty good lifestyle.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, Tim, we are out of time. Thank you again so much for coming on Living Wealthy Radio. And we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Tell our audience how they can learn more about you, if they want to check you out.
3: I would say the the best way is just go to uh, bankonyourself.com, and there's a whole lot of information through uh, our bankonyourself.com website that people can learn and learn about this philosophy. Um, my partner Pamela Yellen does a phenomenal job, and there's there's uh, several number one New York Times best-selling books that they they can get and really. Really learn a lot about this. And if they really want to understand my story, chapter 11 of the Bank on Yourself Revolution uh, book is uh, about my story and, uh, and about my own personal financial solution that I put together when I was 30 years old, when I got married, just before I got married, when I got engaged, actually.
0: When you got engaged. And that is a book that we offer to our audience. And all they have to do is reach out to us at Living Wealthy Financial, and we can get that book out to you at no charge. Because uh, that's part of our process, right? Educating people and um, helping them understand the whole bank on yourself concept. But um, amazing what you've accomplished in, you know, like literally having a huge, huge, huge impact in a world that thinks very different. So uh, kudos to what you've accomplished. And again, very grateful for being on the journey with you.
3: All right. Awesome, Teresa. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com.